वेलकम टू सिंटॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the saying and showing. We'll think about the differences and similarities between the overlapping modes of saying and showing. Which has a greater reach? What is the realm of the non-propositional? Is all showing also saying even in relatively more transparent media such as documentary filmmaking? In films is the image subservient to the spoken or is it the reverse Why is seeing believing What makes saying or showing even possible Do we show because we cannot say everything How can one communicate the unspeakable or ineffable Must one remain silent to understand the unspeakable and what is the long term future of this interplay between saying and showing we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today dr nilanjan bhaumik he teaches philosophy at university of delhi I'm Dr. Aparna Sharma. She is a documentary filmmaker and a theorist. She teaches at UCLA. Aparna, why don't you set the ball rolling with you um, in the world of films? And it's an odd thing in many ways, at least the non-silent ones. They seem to both show and say. Um, would you agree with that statement? Uh, what is film as a mode, as an object, as a thing? As you know, one can pick one's words. And what is it that one can say and not show and show and not say and so on? Like so, when you go around with a camera, when you have A certain thought or a script in your head, what can be captured, not captured. So all of these questions are interlinked. So we'll let you pick one of these and start off, and we'll see where we go. Um, those are two very interesting questions to begin with. Um, first of all, you know, we think of film as a kind of audiovisual medium. So it has it has a body that involves both looking, seeing, and listening. But I also like to just think that you know, as a filmmaker. that the looking and seeing are not just two exclusive watertight sensory apparatuses right. that they're in themselves interlinked and as a maker i also think that you know um, working with these two modalities you also touch on the other senses so you can have a shot which could suggest temperature you could have a shot that can um suggest a sensation you can have a sound that can suggest a sensation so you know often times in common parlance film is thought of as an audiovisual medium mm. but as a maker when i'm thinking of you know how am i going to construct some, something it is really a multisensory complex that i'm kind of thinking about how mm. do i work with sensations in this um many times you know um a lot of film gets thought of 
principally in terms of what it looks like right um and and its content somehow gets thought of as what is communicated verbally or through voice in it right. okay often times so you mean narration dialogue um, narration dialogue these are principal modalities through which um sound takes place or information in film is kind of communicated but this this mapping between narration or the narrative content and the image or the photo visual or the moving visual whatever is there is not one to one right i mean they they're not exactly mapped always yeah. you know this is an important question in all cinema is that you know are you using the image as an illustration of something that's being said mm. and it has been a tendency that has tended to dominate cinema particularly documentary of a certain modality where you know the narration becomes what anchors and drives the kind of movement of of the film and the image kind of becomes something that is substantiating what has been said or spoken okay mm. so the information is like you take your news bulletin in the evening and the images are largely serving a function of illustration or you know a testimony in that sense so in the case of news bulletin the the narration comes first and but when you make your films it's the other way around isn't it you probably shoot it and then do dubbing later <laughs> yeah i mean it's not, it's not so much a question of which comes first in the stage of production right. as much as in a filmmaker's mind what are you thinking as the carrier of what kind of stimulation or information mm-hmm. and a dominant tendency tends to be what can be said through narration and by the same token it is this tendency that a lot of filmmakers say in parallel cinema or art cinema or non mainstream cinema are interested in contesting Mm. so you know if you look at the long legacy of parallel cinema in india or if you look at art cinema in the world generally you will find that these are these are films where there's a very conscious kind of attempt to place the viewer in a position where you exercise both your power of vision and your power of listening um and work with them to derive other forms of meaning and sensory exp- experience so what's, what's the answer to that apart now what is said through narration like what kinds of things i know it's too broad a question i get that but okay what cannot be said through narration where does even narration fail is there such a thing um i would completely say that there is a limit to what can be said in filmic narration you know and and you um if if you if you approach narration as something that is going to be illustrated through the image um i think you're framing both narration and the image in very tight and narrow frames mm. um what can be said can also be something that is non verbal what can be said is also something that is more sensory um fleeting uh requires purely presence as opposed to something that you could describe mm. it may just be a feeling it may just be an emotion that you encounter so in terms of thinking about saying more broadly I think it goes past you know a a notion of giving content information or you know directing in a particular manner it can be about suggestion of of meanings and sensations that may not necessarily be perhaps even um verbally articulated in right. that sense so you you want to open up that register yeah it need not be linguistic so when we say saying we kind of almost mean communicating um at some in, level in a broader yes broader in the broadest way. sense yeah Where are you on this Nilanjan is there 
you know so there there's this notion of suggestion and you know kierkegaard comes to mind but there many other people and what can be said not shown what can be shown not said in many ways that's 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 the central question so what what would the philosopher in you say well um in philosophy the saying and showing distinction was brought out by wittgenstein right and to some extent heidegger also uses it wittgenstein uses it in a very arcane kind of sense but it's a very important sense as well mm-hmm. so he the main question that wittgenstein has in his mind is how is it possible for me to talk about the world because how is it I, even possible to talk about yeah, the world how is it possible for my thought or whatever i say to be about the world uh, this and question why, sounds why, very why? unusual yeah the reason for this is that my the whatever statement i make it's just a sound nothing else if i write something <laughs> on the blackboard it's just marks on the board how can it possibly have any meaning so the ultimate question is asking is what is meaning right such that it gets this sound that i utter from my mouth to say something about the world and here is where the saying and showing thing comes in he says that wherever we say something it's a picture of reality Mm. Now he got his theory apparently now this is a story about him that uh, he was looking at a comic book mm. and uh, some kind of cartoon strip and suddenly the whole thing hit him as to what was the whole point of language mm. <laughs> so he so says the that the whole idea of picture words yeah the idea is that language depicts the world and so in a pictorial sense in a pictorial sense but in not in, the, in not entirely in a pictorial sense it's like a picture of the world it's a very highly abstract picture of the world mm-hmm but but aren't we limiting ourselves to the world of scripts alone what about the spoken word he so, is talking about spoken, spoken word, word as well he says somewhere in the tract does that look you, when you look at a musical notation mm-hmm. or a mathematical notation or a written script or you are just speaking he says that they all come to the same thing ultimately it's all about there is a symbol and there is something that is being symbolized how is the symbolization taking place now he says that we do picture things when we say things in language how is this picturing taking place and that's where the showing comes in he says that so even sense, if even if there were no scripts or let's say musical notations mm-hmm. if one uses the same notation while playing a piece of music mm-hmm. or whatever in some sense if the three of us were to share it then we have a common picture of that note yes you could say that yeah the idea is that it is not so much that it is a common picture the common picture would not be so much in the way you visualize it or the way you uh, write it down or anything like that is more like what wittgenstein has in his mind is a notion of called called logical form mm-hmm. he says that this notion is what is required for whatever you say or whatever notation you have or whatever script there is or anything mm-hmm. that logical form must reflect what is it that you are speaking about the fact in the world has a particular structure what you say about the world has a particular structure the structure of the fact and the structure of the sentence must match each other so there's a commonality between mm-hmm. the two yeah that's some right. kind of a correspondence the, in a strict sense yes that is how the mind gets to interact with the world the mind gets to grasp the world that's how it does so what are saying and showing got to do with this well <laughs> how does the the mind grasp the world that is true yes the grasping is done by the saying but the saying would be helpless without the showing the saying is helped out it is necessarily helped out by what is shown in the sentence i can never speak about how the mind grasps the world that is shown in the sentence 
Now he's using the word show in a very very unusual sense. He's right. not using it in the usual sense of gesture or you know communic- and communication. And it's not just pointing or denoting. No, it's not pointing or denoting or anything like so that. So you you actually grasp a certain kind of internal structure or something. Yeah, that's right. You had something to say to that Aparna? Um yeah. I'm just try- I'm I'm interested in hearing this and I wonder if you can comment like how does this sit in relationship to semiotics where the idea is that the sign um symbolizes a relationship of the referent and to something out there in the world and it's a language system and that this tends to be an arbitrary relationship hmm. between the yeah, sign and what it is referring to yeah, Wittgenstein will say that the relation can be arbitrary but the fact that the name say aparna refers to aparna that's not an arbitrary thing about the name there is something about the name aparna which allows me to speak about you the what the part of the showing thing is that aparna refers to you but i never say that i simply say aparna is drinking water for instance or aparna is drinking tea i do not ever say aparna the name which refers to aparna is drinking tea and of course tea refers to tea and drinking refers to drinking i never say any of these things these are just shown in the sentence mm. these relations of reference mm. of referring to a person the predicate picking out something in the world all that is shown in the sentence so what cannot be shown ah here wittgenstein has some he has an interesting answer to this wittgenstein is abstract anyway so but let's yeah, see now th- the one thing we need to understand is wittgenstein does not think that these are mutually exclusive categories yeah, are we sure of that let me try to give a slightly theoretical answer to this yes uh wittgenstein says that look saying and showing are conjoined you can't say anything unless the saying contains the showing some showing yeah, at least it some has showing. to contain showing it just has to there is nothing there is no way you can say anything so unless the logical form reflects showing. right and the showing again just to be clear is not in the visual sense necessarily no 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 it's not like so like long that. as one is establishing or conveying a certain sense of structure or relationships that's that showing like as well it's more like a reflection of lo- the, the, the logical, logical form. form of the fact is right. reflected by the logical form of the utterance sentence, or the, so the utterance or the thought right. or the musical notation or whatever right now the question comes can there be anything that we can say but something that we cannot show uh well i think wittgenstein would say no to that he would say well it depends now the the, the issue is one easy answer to this question goes like this if we believe that the world is independent of us then it's just obvious that there are things that we we can neither say nor show because language has a certain reach are there things in the world of which we cannot think of the answer to that should be very obvious that yeah of course why right. not right because we are supposed to be realist right you don't think that bombay exists because you look at it right no it exists in, in any case so if bombay exists in any case there are many things in bombay that you probably have never thought about and probably would never think about or probably nobody would ever think about what does this have to do with the question of what cannot be shown and and i'm not I'm, and this is an independent question independent of the concerns that i'm saying so what cannot be shown what of what is a logical form impossible to denote or convey or what does not have a logical wittgenstein form wittgenstein says at one point that solipsism is true <laughs> okay so now he says that you cannot say that solipsism is true it is shown mm. it is shown that i only exist mm. but i cannot say it because then it would be nonsensical kind of statement to make but it is just shown 
in the same way we often say tautologies mm. or contradictions a tautology would be something like um, p or not p right. contradiction is p and not p right so we can say these things but they don't really mean anything for wittgenstein right. they don't really stand for anything they don't picture any facts in the world so they have a faulty so, logical yeah. form so almost. the contradiction is shown or the tautology is shown but we cannot really say it tautology because they are the saying is pointless like why would you say such a thing it does not reflect anything at all so when you when you when you work on films aparna or as one thinks about it more theoretically and one can reflect on people who may have written or thought about it is there an element of demonstrating or conveying this logical form does narration does that and and, and i mean the narrative structure so like how do you craft a film is there an equivalent of how we obviously all of us are crafting sentences all the time in the in the way we communicate with each other so is there a somewhat strict or loose grammar at work in the way um because eventually films most films convey something there's a certain meaning that goes from the maker to the spectator mm. uh now is there something structural about it yeah or the yeah. manner in which you do it yeah you know so all uh, almost all filmmakers tend to in a kind of loose way think of cinema as some kind of vocabulary without being literal in that relationship sure. of filmic language to spoken language and it's more a means of communication with reference to film there are types of films and why do we call them types of films not just because of their content or their themes but also because of how they are constructed mm-hmm. and um many times you know um the construction of a film is not just anchored by voice you know or narration as it were there are many other factors that go into but when i say narration i mean it in the sense of narrativity so even silent films presumably have a narrative structure irrespective yeah. of whether yeah. there's a voice over or narration yeah. or dialogues yeah. right so, so you always think of you know um while while in the making of a film you think of a narrative structure and that narrative structure could be based on any particular um theme or idea that the filmmaker may be working with i may be making a silent film that is looking at the shot of an ocean um and and i still feel there's a narrative arc to it that the sea was probably calm and then it picks up and it gets a bit violent and then it becomes calm again okay right. so you're thinking of film as a form of storytelling and narration in that sense is when it kind of makes an arc in meaning and communicates something so and an instance like this where you look at the ocean this can both be written about so let's call it let's loosely call it saying uh and it can also be shown so somebody like you could turn up there with a camera and with some skill also just show it without saying anything of yeah. course even that yeah. is a certain kind of saying yeah mm. yeah and i think you know there what becomes interesting for me is to think about medium specificity yeah that's such know? a beautiful thought there yeah. is something that writing does there's something that fiction writing does there's something that poetic writing does there's something that essay writing does and likewise there is something that the medium of cinema does mm-hmm. okay and within the medium of cinema a certain kind of film does something so there are different kinds of films and they do different things mm-hmm. what does the medium of cinema do well in in terms of thinking about medium specificity um you're thinking of a medium that works principally with images and sound 
it's an know. image sound amalgam in amalgam right. and and it it also has a more sensory um kind of it works with a wider sensory apparatus right um than say reading a book which isn't to say that reading a book can't be a sensorial experience but in terms of its material its materiality you're working with something that exercises senses right. um in a very immediate way and that is something that is you know closely related to the idea of medium specificity yeah so thinking about that is kind of a very important question for many filmmakers and would yeah. you call cinema a separate medium or and and so what would the, what would its siblings be is it just written stuff or is it like novel or you know what i mean like at what's the video taxonomy games, of video it? games are also like image and sound right yeah I mean, in a loose sense, yeah. <laughs> loose sense, you know, all media are cousins of some kind. Right. But, you know, um, the great film studies scholar Peter Wallen had mm. a distinction between films of two kind. Mm-hmm. One were films that were literature oriented, literary in their structure. They told a story um, and they had a very clear literary narrative arc. So, you know, their relation, their affinity to literature is very close. Right. Okay? in that sense and the other form of film is the painterly film right where you know some kind of narration of a story with say characters kind of takes a back seat and meaning and experience and affect are principally provoked by the material properties of the cinematic medium mm. whether those are material properties say the texture of sound mm. or whether that is the material property of a shot Mm. you know um a long shot running for a certain period of time what is its affective property mm. a close up related to a particular kind of sound what is its affective property mm. so the difference between the literary and the painterly and this is in relationship to talking about avant-garde film right. so the literary avant-garde is that which is trying to provoke a way of looking at the world through characters and through literary influence and the painterly avant-garde is the kind of cinema that is provoking um a kind of situating or activating the viewer into having a certain sensory affective experience and is it just uh, different weightages to form versus content or there's more to this uh, literary versus painterly um i think form and content work in both mm. it is the configurations of form and content that are different right so say in a more literary film you would perhaps be taking into consideration more things related to narrative register Mm. you know so you could be thinking about characters secondary characters plot so there's idea reality, of plot progress and turns. and you know social reality and the relationship of character to the world you're thinking of those sorts of things it's kind of like you know reading a um russian novel in yeah. that sense okay yeah. Yeah. the painterly avant-garde also has its narrative arc and it also has to think about structure and what is the form and what is the content um this is my take by the way there is a painter the avant-garde that really does believe it is sure. only form and no content <laughs> but sure. i don't think that really is i think that's an idealism <laughs> at some level uh but there the the terms of construction vary because the material differs so both of them are dealing with form and content but the relationships of form and content differ in both cases and what do you mean when you say material differs um you know in cinema studies materiality has a very particular resonance and by materiality it it originates in relationship to celluloid 
So the texture of film as a substance. Mm-hmm. So say, you know, you look, pick up an old photograph, okay, before digital era, and it's fading, it's sepia in tone, it's tattered. That would be something, that experience of understanding that this photograph is fading, or, uh, you know, that it's tearing apart, or its colors are fading, or that it was taken from a camera that used film as opposed to, you know, a digital interface for constructing that photograph, <laughs> provokes a different kind of materiality. That is what we refer to. So there are different kinds of formats in film. Okay, But so can't you do both literary and painterly works irrespective of the material? Or um, you no, could... there may be a historical fact to this of what came first and what was, what was the technology dominant at that point in time. But Yeah, as... yeah. Um, and, you know, in some senses, these questions of materiality have for a long time in film theory been related to questions of the cinematic, the celluloid medium. Okay, mm. and they have changed. I'm, you know, happy to say, with video and video the and digital, right. the idea of the materiality changes. You know, right. with digital cameras, what are you dealing with? Eventually, you're dealing with an interface that is bits and bytes, zeros and ones, right? So mm. the materiality changes over there. But does it really change at one level? Because yeah. you're still working with the same principle that light falls on something and passes through a lens and creates an image. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think the terms of materiality have Yeah, shifted. so I think the interesting thing is why isn't that just merely incidental? Like why yeah. is there anything deep? Why yeah. is there anything yeah. deep to it? Um and I think, you know, just to put it in historical context, why does materiality become important? Because in film theory there is a deep sense from at least the late 1960s and 70s when there's a phase of film theory that has a real political resurgence following the events of May 68 sure. and the student movement where the idea is that dominant mainstream film um, is largely anthropomorphic and it is narrative oriented of a certain kind storytelling of a highly institutionalized kind so if right. you take something like classical hollywood film it's a highly you know formed structure where you know the first 30 minutes have to have something happen and then the sure. plot point happens at 1 hour and then it recedes after that and there's a climax and conclusion um A lot so of the, code at work. Uh, what has been called as the institutional mode of representation, that yeah. the structure is completely institutionalized. Yeah. What happened with the impetus of, you know, new historicism and film studies um, around May 68 right. was this notion that could we think of film structures that were breaking away from the institutional mode of representation and thereby offering us perspectives, be they through the literary avant-garde, or the painterly avant-garde or whatever you may want to call it world cinema parallel cinema could we have perspectives could cinema be about experiences and perspectives that are not sustained by institutional modes of no, that's a, so so nilanjan if there were no films in the world if it didn't come to be what would we not see like what exactly and and maybe what is the wrong question the 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 better word is probably how or how, so That's a good question what, because what, yeah what do we s- before maybe 1850s or whenever the camera was invented and films came into being and all that we didn't have films so what is it that we were missing yeah, i guess we were missing we a lot of entertainment now? in the first place yeah. <laughs> but so, also but yeah i'm trying to pose this as a somewhat deep question hmm. um and obviously there are many trivial responses something of this nature that we wouldn't have this and we wouldn't have that so a lot of those are incidental but in a somewhat deep way what I remember Nepal saying this that 
the reason why we don't have that many great novels nowadays is that lots of the great artists turn to cinema yeah so the his notion is that look cinema just had all these really talented people going into it no that's okay so they did the same thing so if if there is a certain thirst for a certain kind of expression or mm. a certain kind of representation or a certain kind of understanding and then you go about it whichever way what is it that's so it's likely that cinema is able to do something which is slightly beyond what at least a semi skilled <laughs> novelist somebody is able to do because that's probably the reason why some talented people are going that way and if you just take that at face value for a while so what is it about that mode or that medium which is making us say or show more that's probably the case one would have to start with I that kind of hypothesis because visuality is so dominant perception is amongst the most dominant features of all human beings and indeed pretty much lots of sentient creatures mm. so because of this notion of perception being so dominant cinema is so important art expressed through novel for instance is just you know lots of words on a page and you read it and read it and as kundera says i mean novel suffers from what is called forgetting <laughs> it's not so with cinema i can still remember lots of shots i have seen in many many movies i still remember all the oh yeah this is what happened in rashomon and you know this is what happened in sanshodayu and whatever oh what a wonderful shot there are so, lots so of things you just forget in a novel completely so it's more compatible with the way we form memories Yeah that is true very much is that is that fair aparna <laughs> yeah cinematic perception i want to i just want to step back and respond to your question in a little more sure. detail you know if you think of what is cinema mm. um okay it comes about 1895 whenever it comes about sure. camera comes about 1830s whatever whatever the the still photograph that's one way that's historical fact but what is it about looking at pictures moving that impulse how far can you take it back you go back to the cave paintings mm. or you go back to plato's cave mm. <laughs> you know where in front of a fire when shadows moved there was something quite spectacular and arresting about that experience how far mm. do you want to push uh, the idea of cinema behind you know in history you can go back to that moment if you look and at and even silent cinema is that uh, is that um, a little bit more than a novel or I mean, these are highly. I mean, these are stupid questions. I totally get no, get you, that. No, I think what you're. Now we making language almost redundant. Um, like, do we need to say a lot less? Indeed, Rudolf Arnheim said that silent cinema is better than yeah. cinema with sound in it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, he yeah, thought that sound damages things, but <laughs> that it. silent cinema is actually more real. Like it's showing you reality as it is without all this interference from sound. Right. 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 You know. Um, This is great Arnheim's reference you know a very important figure uh one thing that is you know this a minute ago we were talking about the institutional mode of representation okay mm-hmm. the institutional mode of representation kind of formed into something with the arrival of sound Mm-hmm. Okay, so it became you know cinema. It became, could be accompanied by instruction almost. Yeah. Or, yeah, and you know when cinema was born, you know twenty eighth December eighteen ninety five, when the Lumiers were first screening those, they had no idea Hollywood would happen one day. That right. was not what they started out with. Sure, sure. You know, so it has this meteoric rise cinema into this industrial format very quickly, sure. and this institutionalized format. But many film theorists. Mm-hmm. 
and artists and myself included will tell you that the first 10 years of cinema 1895 to 1905 before the code starts happening when cinema is still this apparatus where the thrill is of looking at things moving touches something so primal inside us and so basic that that thrill you know is in some ways unparalleled and perhaps that thrill kind of or, or the thrill of that is kind of compromised when it when cinema becomes an institutionalized mode of a certain kind of storytelling. You're talking about the pre-code era before yeah. the formula yeah. takes shape. Takes shape. And it's about, you know, you look at early Lumiere films. What are they? They're single shot films that are basically looking at scenes. Folks getting down a train for about 45 seconds. The first film that they projected, I'm not sure if it's the first one they made, is workers leaving a factory. What's the thrill of seeing that? The thrill of seeing that, uh, no matter the Marxists in the room who feel the birth of cinema is great because it's looking at workers, the thrill of that is you suddenly start seeing the pictures move. Now, this is something that, if you really look at it in a broad perspective, is something that has been present in many civilizations in different forms. You can see the Patua paintings in Bengal and Orissa where the painting is unfolded and a story is told alongside it. You could also look at the Impressionists. What are they trying to do with Impressionism? Give it some movement. Give it a sense of movement. So the thrill of the pictures moving. So we've been struggling to move for for a long time. For a very long time. (laughs) Cinema does it beautifully like no other medium can do. So is, is, is showing more vivid than saying? Is saying somewhat dull? Is saying more difficult? In the sense of showing and saying that you are using now, yeah, that is true. I mean, I, I personally believe that in cinema, the saying is part of the showing. Because when you're, say, making a film on Hamlet, for instance, what would be a film on Hamlet if the dialogues were all terrible? I mean, the, the sayings in it are all part of the showing. Right. A documentary film need not have a narration, but if it, if it just writes stuff under the screen, for instance, some in some language, whatever, you can simply read it and that's about it. It's part of the show. If it's... If the dialogues are terrible, then somehow that just spoils the show. It spoils the cinema. I mean, I can give an illustration. Like, so Mizoguchi used to make commercial films. Mm-hmm. He had to. I mean, he had to make films in every three months or six months just because his company had to make money through him. Sure. But he produced great cinema still. And the re- he has good dialogues and he has fantastic shot making. Just unbelievable shot making. People have pointed out that Mizoguchi's shots are so good that you would never use a camera again if you ever saw a Mizoguchi film. And to some extent, that is true. I've seen some of these Mizoguchi movies. You feel bad in holding a camera after that. You just don't want to take photographs anymore. Because the guy is so good. The thing about cinema is that it's, it's, it relates to my perception. It's so, just like perceiving things. So th- that's where there is almost a distinction, not distinction, but there is something different between just seeing and showing. So if Mizoguchi had a certain kind of skill or a talent or an eye, you know, a lot of us can be at that scene or can be at a no, certain place not. where something happens. Uh, so what is it? What is it about? Uh, is it just a certain perspective, a certain shot? So what, what exactly is at work there? I wish I had an answer to that. <laughs> yeah, that's just pure talent that this man has, that he's able to shoot things in a way which is which are extraordinarily immediate. Like when you see Mizoguchi shots, they are just amazing. You just can't believe that anyone can do this. Yet he's just doing a very simple thing. He just has a camera in his hand and he just has a specific perspective and that's about it. But the shots stay in your mind. Just like some very 
good aphorism from some book will stay in your mind in the same way short stays in your mind a really great shot that you have, that you uh, say from a hindi movie for instance like shole everybody remembers there's a train running <laughs> then it blows through the logs and whatever so people remember those shots why it's because of the immediacy of perception i think what does that mean our primary mode of uh, looking at the world is through perception and so when we look at the cinema we tend to participate in the same kind of world again this is very different from a novel where you have to read and you know you go back to it again if it's a very long novel like if you're reading war and peace 1400 pages well it is going to take a long time the same story can be told in 3 hours on screen and yeah it is true that we lose tolstoy's uh, beautiful prose but we get the story and the narration and sometimes with great acting and with great direction you get a lot of other things as well so when you say immediacy of perception is it almost like first person experience is it almost like yeah you like could say that you relate to it yourself all of us feel like oh, when the hero is hit by someone yeah you relate to it you say i i don't want this to happen to him mm but i also think you know um i i i see what you're saying immediacy of perception but i also think there's a craft involved in constructing that right oh yes that is true uh, and that craft is not just about you know getting the camera right or right. um getting a good actor or a dialogue without meaning to undermine those things sure. you know when i'm sitting on a cutting table there are many elements that i am thinking about and then constructing an experience of time right in relationship to those so you know i could have a beautiful piece of music but if i do not put it at a moment which is preceded by a uh, some other element that prepares the audience for that i might be shooting myself in the foot you know so and there's destroy- an element of expectation almost expectation and you are directing setting. attention of the viewer mm. which sometimes which is which is not just a um a static or a kind of monotonous way you have to think about texture you have to think about narrativity you have to think about expectation you have to think about time uh, there are many elements that go into it you know and and shots and sounds are your basic tools but then you put it together in a certain way um where you are you you have to have a sense of responsibility as to what you're preparing the audience for and are you delivering that for somebody right you know so there's a craft that is at work here sure. and which isn't just working with one medium it's working with many elements in time i agree with all these what i want to say about immediacy is that it's the immediacy that the person who's looking at the film relates to the immediacy is not about the production of course there there are hundreds of people involved in a movie and the person who's watching the film knows that to some extent he knows that there is going to be a big role of people coming up when when the hollywood film ends so he knows that hundreds and hundreds of names will come up but when he's watching the film there is this there's this theory as a matter of fact by kendall walton he says that f- the film is transparent you see the object directly mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. perception straight forward like it's happening in front of you it's just like you're walking in a street and a mm-hmm. car honks and you step aside mm-hmm. it's happening right there Mm. so it affects my emotions directly straight mm. away mm. without translation yeah without translation it's just like i'm walking mm. in a street in the same way you are just sitting somewhere and watching a film but it's just immediate to mm. you mm. because of the visuality of it so what do i understand if i watch a foreign language film i have no clue about without subtitles 
That's a really great question because I had just thought of it because I remember watching uh, a Malayalam film once. I don't know Malayalam of course and right. there was no translation under it. So, but I watched the entire movie. It was a really well shot movie, very well made and I understood the story very well. I had no problems understanding the story at all. I understood not a single dialogue. But I understood the entire story very well. I said, yeah, this is a great movie, wonderful. <laughs> so it's it it's interesting that one can understand the film very easily without really understanding. It was almost a silent film for you. I mean, clearly yeah, you got some tonality film. and something was happening. There must have been some background score here and there. Yeah, it had music and all that and it was a very intense movie as a matter of fact. But I understood it very nicely without and I I remember having this habit of watching these uh, Assamese movies or you know some movie in Haryanvi or whatever because I thought that I could just understand it in any case. I didn't really have to bother about the language. because of that experience with the malayalam film so once right. i saw that and i understood it i kind of i was encouraged to watch the other movies as well i saw <laughs> i i don't really care about the language anymore i can just watch it and understand it that this is what the story is this is the structure of the film so what's the realm of the non propositional niranjan what can one not have propositions about how does one communicate the or relay or convey the ineffable we we certainly have feelings and experiences that we can barely articulate to ourselves let alone express it there are, there are lots of questions being run together there the way i i would convey something which is ineffable would be lots of things are ineffable i mean i personally think that just sitting in this room and just talking about it is not going to help us understand sure. what experience i actually had so if i go out and say look this is what happened and this is what happened people wouldn't really get the real feel of the immediacy i have right now right i can do whatever i can with language it simply doesn't matter so if you had to convey this if you if you had to convey the immediacy of your experience on that chair behind that mic just now what can we do we can shoot this we can shoot the scene we can yeah we can shoot it and show, show it to someone but that's still in partial in language right? for instance that's still that partial that would be very difficult to do i would just have to say well i sat behind a mic but i will lose detail right in a shot you get perspective but you also get detail so suppose the camera is behind my head okay you get one perspective right but you don't get her perspective or your perspective right so there is a sense in which some information is being lost as to how you are looking at the room or how she is looking at the room so one if so, the camera so, is behind so. my head one just gets one perspective so showing is always one perspective at least at a moment in time Yes, so I, temporarily mean, speaking. So you take a film like Rashomon, which is giving you three different interpretations. Yeah, but that's a different, uh, you know, way of layering things together and yeah. bringing them together. But at any point, they're almost like three parallel stories. Yeah, but also, you know, when you're working with a camera, unless you're working with a three D camera, which also moves through time. when you're looking through a camera you're only looking at one field of vision which is often just the field of vision in front of you but even if you do 3d camera at least for the spectators just only one perspective when you at watch at one it. point yeah at one point, point in, time. in time so so does does saying evade that problem can one say from a variety of perspectives simultaneously or this so perspective is this very difficult to do i mean saying is propositions are very abstract by nature i think we are not understanding that right now propositions are incredibly abstract so when i say something like three people are sitting here that's a very abstract statement to make right there's no way in which you would reconstruct that in an identical way 
if so if 100 people were to hear that proposition yeah that's right it would mean very different things to different people right. they would visualize it very differently right right so you know, i never said we were sitting on a chair for instance we could be just sitting on the ground right right or maybe there are different ways of sitting right so I mean, prop- propositions miss out on a lot they but, kind of convey information but what can you even not even have a proposition about it depends on what you think is ineffable now if like me you think that lots of things are ineffable <laughs> indeed literally pretty much all of perception is like this then propositions can never be about any of these stuff why why do you say that because so, i think that we just capture certain aspects of reality through propositions only the, certain aspects yeah. are hmm. i pick out certain aspects for instance if i go out of this room i may not even remember how many tables were there in this room right so in my head i would say oh yeah i think there was one table there that's a proposition right it doesn't really capture reality if i say there are two tables there does it mean what square tables round tables what kind of table how high was it right so the propositions don't really capture reality like we think they do we operate so much with our minds and we speak so much in language <laughs> that we often forget that our perception is pretty much ineffable when i touch something and the, the texture is very ordinary how would you describe it how would i describe your voice for instance to someone how does one describe touch how does one describe voice at the best you would say you know i touch something which had a rough texture or something so let's flip that question what can be described or what can one have propositions about with very high fidelity that's a really good question very yeah. high fidelity with you know i get it so you say that to 100 people everybody totally gets it yeah i no, think the so highest fidelity belongs to mathematics because is because you know the numbers are in something so we just don't see them <laughs> right so if you don't perceive something if something is sens- sensorily not available to you there the propositions really stand out so say, yeah i i got this in perfect line with reality so you don't misunderstand the, the number 3 yeah that's right because there's nothing to misunderstand because it's an abstract yeah, entity to begin with if i say 3 plus 3 is 6 everyone gets it the same way <laughs> because it's not ineffable there's no re- well, well it depends upon even if there is a reality to mathematics it's just captured in- immediately because i don't perceive it perception is so rich that it is very difficult for language to capture it but somehow we are able to capture abstractions like mathematics very easily that's so beautiful that's so beautiful that's, that's so beautiful. my view regarding because if you think that perception is not ineffable that i can speak about just anything no but it would seem um, it seems accurate to me i don't know about you parna is perception largely ineffable so if you make films or you out there in the hills with a certain tribe um presumably you can't express most of it i agree i agree it's it's very difficult to disagree with what nilanjan is saying yes i agree um and i only you know working with that proposition if i push it a little bit more um i i think you only you know as you know this amazing um asian american filmmaker trinity minha says you know mm-hmm. that there is no truth that cinema or documentary in particular conveys there are only certain meanings that assume valence and readability at given moments in time right so film is not you know at least in documentary you know the big thing is this is the medium of truth yeah as so if objective. truth were a singular thing right. that was awaiting the cameraman to come and capture it <laughs> it doesn't work that way so you know as you said working with a particular tribe in the hills 
my film is never going to be able to um you know suggest what that experience was for me even if i made it an autobiographical first person um yeah even if film, it was your meaning um yeah. it's not because you know it is already encoded by the fact that it has to be a certain duration so let's just take it at a crude level um so there is always this angle of editing time away involved isn't it um editing time away and also you know selecting you can't make editing. a 70 year long film about somebody who leads a 70 year long life even if you <laughs> i mean attempt not exactly at documenting every moment of 70 years but you know there is this this very interesting series by the british filmmaker michael apted Mm-hmm. which is called the 7 up series right where right. he started making mm-hmm. films every 7 years on every 7 years you know with these kids when they were born that's still seven, a form of editing yeah. isn't it um exactly so you right. know that notion that there is some kind of omniscient eye in documentary that tells you the total truth is actually highly unsustainable yeah and you are only at any given point um so that's probably probably problematic in a very obvious kind of way isn't it most people would agree with what you're saying yeah but you know often the claim on documentaries is, is the, the medium of truth and objectivity <laughs> right <That's laughs> and true. it's it's something it's 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 a it's it's something you have to work your way through and go i'm not that person who is giving you the objective truth what i'm giving you is perhaps a certain interpretation whether that is a literal interpretation or a more suggestive poetic interpretation and that 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 is not necessarily a form of bias and thereby uh, somehow depleting the documentary efficacy or claim in it i think to to stand on that side of the argument uh, for most part it's at least not fiction so it may be a certain perspective there may be an angle of editing things away but it's 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 not it's not fiction yeah maybe there's an element of stylizing an element yeah. of there is a different phenomenology at work with the audience also you know the audience sure. of a documentary film is sitting with a very different sense of appreciation for the object before them right and you are conscious when you're sitting and watching a fiction film of the fact that what you're watching is fiction i mean for that matter all of living is perspectival right i mean we are always looking at something or the other some other way or the other but why is seeing believing i mean we somehow it's very difficult to see something and then not believe it right i mean there's the super i mean obviously it's I a cliche there's just a there's just an evolutionary explanation for that that if you see something it better be there yeah because if it isn't there then well there's something something either seriously wrong with the world or there's something seriously wrong with the hard wiring in your brain <laughs> and neither of them are good for evolution so better that seeing is believing though of course most people don't really believe that seeing is believing right when I mean, philosophers say look seeing can't be believing i mean there's lots of things that happen that are not there hallucinations well how are we supposed to account for that because that that cannot be just seeing is believing but those are like very arcane arguments i mean you are right i mean obviously seeing is believing so when i see the car approaching me i just step aside seeing is believing straight forward right i don't think at that time that i'm suffering from hallucinations or i took lsd 5 minutes ago so there is no car there <laughs> <laughs> so this just seeing is believing of course and there's a straight forward evolutionary explanation for it 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 had better be believing right 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 there's one question i want to ask aparna though yes if it is true that there's no truth in uh, making a cinema or a documentary then would it not be demotivating for the person who's making it no so i mean i don't think aparna is saying that there's no truth it's mm. a, it's it's a certain 
version of the truth or her truth at a point in time so it's and it's a resistance to the idea that what i'm presenting is the total truth about something as yeah, a filmmaker that's fine yeah that's fine yeah. so mean, there could be a take on it and yeah. that's probably what keeps that's aparna, a harmless doctrine yeah, aparna and her and and people of her ilk motivated <laughs> i think he's a little worried yeah. worried about your motivation <laughs> <laughs> no, I would be there more. Is, <laughs> there is some authenticity to that inca- entire encounter. That then that still... could be a harmless kind of thing. Yeah, that you know, I'm not presenting the total truth. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. And and that is a huge responsibility that kind of gets identified with documentary making. That you, you know, it documentary gets conflated with objectivity, truth, total truth, um, and that there is no personal intervention in documentary. And the minute you say that, you know, there's some style. It's it's perceived as somehow polluting or compromising documentary claim it's that that i'm kind of resisting in saying that i'm not taking on the mantle of giving you the whole truth <laughs> i i can't do it it's not possible what about descriptions do we describe better by showing by saying descriptions of anything it could be of a match it could be of the way you cook something it could be of the way anything right it could be the way you make films or it could be the way you read tractatus here we need to actually think about emotions hmm so how do you describe disgust for instance describe describe disgust describe disgust yeah yes well you could just say the guy is disgusted or you could mime his disgust by showing it in your face as to how he felt disgusted which is a better way of putting it forward So I mean lots of experiments have been done on this notion of disgust as a matter of fact it's a rather important field in uh, what is called sentimental morals the idea is uh, you explore the notion of disgust and see how it is manifested in human beings and one way of for instance when we uh, teach children that you should not touch say a dog's turd or something like that we don't tell them don't touch that we react with disgust right So there are certain things where descriptions fail. There's no point in telling a child, you know, don't touch the fire or something. You react, right, in front of the fire. So you give the response, yeah, a, a priori. Right. Yeah. So description there is not going to work that well. What's going to work well is what was the actual reaction that you should have had. And when should one remain silent? When is silence a good idea? And silence is always a good idea. <laughs> In most <laughs> cases given the how, how noisy our society is. <laughs> But I mean you obviously you mean something different. Yeah. Uh, well Wittgenstein said you should always be silent when it comes to philosophical questions. Because not because they are nonsensical. I mean he, they are nonsensical in some sense. But he does not mean nonsensical in a pejorative sense. He just means that they are such the questions are of such importance that they cannot be answered. The answers are simply shown. they can never be said that was his earlier view of course later on he thinks that well i mean this is sure it's a nonsensical thing and it's just language has gone on holiday and all that so yeah that's fine but the idea technically you should be silent where you don't have an you don't have an answer or sometimes you should be silent when the answer is incredibly important why would you say the latter why uh, should one stay silent sometimes we do react with silence suppose a judge asks mahatma gandhi why do you think your stance is moral well gandhi can always reply with silence what else can he say there is no point in giving an answer then so sometimes silence is incredibly important 
you remain silent sometimes when we are angry we are silent what are those sometimes is what one is trying to get after well when the situation is a very important one when you want to get a point across then you just become silent so yeah that point comes through that when you want to show something of great importance then you are just silent how do you go silent in cinema i don't think silence <clears throat> as a quality of sound or stillness maybe i don't know what is actually possible in cinema you know you can create moments that are more silent than others but i don't think there is something as absolute silence in cinema but not necessarily in the auditory sense alone i think one is trying to um i can give an example of silence in cinema so when the credits come up in a hollywood movie when the cinema has finished that's essentially silence everyone just leaves <laughs> nobody really sits there to watch the credits or you know listen to the music that's accompanying the yeah, credits yeah but that's in a different sense yeah. <laughs> um maybe in the sense of there being no action there being no doing yeah there is a certain kind of doing in a in a deep kind of way maybe yeah um, yeah a lot of a lot of avant-garde film is highly measured in what it expresses and is in that sense you know more silent and constrained and restrained in that sense but i think as a maker i would say silence is also perhaps a quality or an experience you construct um um at a certain at a certain moment in in the filmic experience you create a moment of pause i can pause. give an example of Silent. this pause is a better yeah stillness you know, pause these yeah. are yeah i'm always reminded of this moment in one of satyajit ray's essays where he says you know the long shot is a long shot of any any scene he would always use it um to kind of be a gap between two sequences where there had been a lot of action right so the 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 long shot became a moment of um his words were you know giving giving the viewer time to breathe take a deep breath the right. long shot is like a deep breath right it gives us time to collect ourselves to pause to and to still down yeah um and i think many films do that in many different ways you 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 take a film which has reached its emotional climax and for a little while after that nothing you, happens you, you're you're purely in in that emotion in those sensations there's no action happening at that time you know um yeah because you don't go from one emotional state to another in knee jerk ways yeah. i mean you you transition you, you, through that yeah you taper down and maybe yeah. enter something and you else. also take a certain emotion and an affect you know that affective experience also has an arc to it it is not static in that sense that you introduce an emotion and then you replace it with something else right i remember this uh, moment of silence in one of kurosawa's films i'm forgetting the name of the movie there's this man who goes to a doctor and the doctor tells him you have cancer right the moment he tells him he has cancer suddenly all sound disappears in the film and for the next 5 or 6 minutes there is no sound nothing this the man just comes out of the doctor's room and he starts walking and he probably has to catch a bus and go home there's no sound he's on a street trucks are passing by people are passing by him but there's no sound it's almost like you stop perceiving the world yeah it's like suddenly everything so great is the disastrous news for him so awful is the news that everything has suddenly stopped for him all right. sound has disappeared it's a great moment of silence in that movie what's the future 
what might be the new ways be in the long term future 500 years 1000 years 2000 years of new ways of seeing of showing of conveying of expressing of understanding you know i mean if you ask this question 200 years ago nobody would have said cinema <laughs> but it such such is the way of life and these things happen and in all likelihood we have no clue either but i still pose the question to both of you i'm not sure where technology is going to go so i'm not necessarily giving an answer on technology but um you know two people who i read very closely susan sontag and john berger what i take away from them is a vision for the future you know the ways of seeing um and other essays you sure. know um that you know it's time that media like cinema and photography had a way of showing that was um more humane in the sense more private mm. so you know berger has this distinction between the private photograph and the public photograph mm. the public photograph is a photograph meant for public consumption and it's in a very fast cycle of emerging in society and being replaced by another photograph private photograph is something that keeps accruing meaning over time you know so the photograph of my dead grandmother she's dead she's not there but with every passing moment that photograph's value is increasing for me and you know that is something beautiful in berger that you know we need to cultivate a practice of working with images that can somehow translate or be sensitive to how images have private value and meaning mm. and that is something you know that is a kind of a humanist vision for <laughs> for the future of cinema and technologies related to the camera that i i i think of and i i also think that a certain kind of humanist vision for the future is actually the way to you know getting past the human and getting into the post human where i can i can create a praxis that has empathy for the non human so that would be you know some of my thoughts in response to that nilanjan you seem to know the answer no no i don't know the answer <laughs> i can't look into the future the future of saying depends upon its past as a matter of fact it depends upon how you can think how you think of saying so saying is a propositional thing it's something you state things you state things in language it depends on how language comes to be so some people believe it just comes to society right so whatever the future of saying is depends upon the future of communicative the use of communication in society right so if society can do without communication or it can do with very little communication then the saying function of language will simply disappear almost if saying is something that is not just constructed by society but there is an element of biology and there is an element of genetic mutation that's going on lots of people believe this that we just don't speak because we are social creatures we speak because we are just individual creatures who wish to express themselves right then that issue is would the next 500 or 1000 years would there be some kind of genetic mutation in us we don't speak just because we have somebody to speak to we speak yeah we speak because we largely we speak to ourselves right this is one of the views of i mean it's a minority view but it's not such a bad view i mean even some people have thought that wittgenstein also believed this private language in a different not sense not in a private yeah in a, in a different sense it's just that you express yourself language is not meant for communication it is meant for expression, expression. there's an expressive mm-hmm. so let's let's end with this so if there were to be a world of blind people 
mm-hmm. only blind people what would that world be like it wouldn't be any different from the world that we have right now the world would be pretty much the same it is just that the visuality would be lost that's all language but, but works you know, in any case so blind people pick up language just like any indeed blind people use the word see this is well known by the way from experiments in cognitive science blind people use the word see saw seeing seen in exactly the same ways that other people who have visual abilities do but nilanjan that's why this is a planet of only blind people because probably what we're doing is that the ones with eyes are training the blind into picking up a certain meaning of seeing ah here the, the, that's why so i this mentioned is this issue as to only how do we people. think about language if you think that language is simply a question of being trained by another person yeah sure <laughs> that's not then yeah then the then the answer is going to be well since the blind people are not don't have other visually better off people training them because so they would they, it would affect them badly but would they still point would they still denote would they still i think they would what would the logical form be indeed this question was raised how much, some extent how much thought of, of by descartes mm. descartes said that why is it that a blind man behaves pretty much the same way as a man with vision and he said that it is because the blind man constructs a picture of the world in his mind right that he has some kind of picture of what is there in front of him so it is not as if the blind man is completely cut off from the world that's not how it is he's visually cut off but he has other sensory modalities which come into play and help him around the world so being blind is not going to really affect seeing or showing not to that extent as we think it does not its logical form no i don't think so that's the beauty of language it is so deeply related to the mind and so less related to so called communication this is one view of language of course sure so if 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 it is deeply related to the mind and it is not that related to speaking to others then blindness does not really affect saying yeah it could affect gestures to some extent but there, there does not appear to be any great empirical evidence for this and that's probably a little trivial mm. um how do blind people relate to cinema yeah i've had i've had blind students as students who wanted to work with the camera mm and you know it was work with the camera work with actually the cam- be directors or something yeah. to that effect and it's very challenging but it's actually a great learning experience to work with a student who wants to work with a visual medium that they are probably not going to see you know so one of the things that i found working and i always find actually with um, students who are visually impaired is their sense of composition or how they describe what they would like to compose is very tactile mm-hmm. and um you know it forces us to think of touch in a way that we don't when we are only thinking of vision in the way we use it right you know so texture becomes very important and somehow texture is actually you know more intimate you know a shot that suggests it's a lot this, more personal yeah it's the, a more, the surface, lot more subjective yeah and the surface of the stable is rough or smooth right. is actually more more effective and more close than looking at a shot of the stable and having to decipher that for yourself right you know um so in that sense you know working thinking of a cinema that is for the blind or by the blind 
is actually a deeply educative experience for us because it forces us to think of other sensory registers. But what is not possible in that context? I mean, do, do they, by and large, and I know you may have had just one or two instances of this nature, so nobody expects an empirically robust... Well, you know, what is not possible, I'm not sure if that's a relevant thing, at yeah. least for me. Because what is not possible, yes, certainly it's not possible to conceive a film in the way that somebody who's visually, you know, capable to conceive it. So that's lost. But what comes, if you put that aside, if you work with what is the newness of that, it's actually quite instructive. Well, so what's new? How do they, how, how, how does one capture the tactile? Um... You know, you, how does one show the tactile? How does yeah, one convey that? Yeah, I mean, that? so when I worked with one or two students who were visually impaired, of course, and you became... And they were impaired or they were blind? One was blind, one sure. was impaired. Um, you became a kind of translator for what they were trying to, you know, communicate. And in the process of translation, what I found myself doing a lot was working with a cinema or a mode of visuality that privileges close-up and texture. Mm. more than distance and identification. Mm. You know? mm. And that kind of, you know, was very profound at many levels. Yeah, Why is. do I keep my camera at a certain distance from people? Yeah. And when I cannot see them from a certain distance, I go close to them. Um, and my sense of appreciating the other shifts from looking at them towards touching them. Right. Not necessarily, you know, in an erotic in way, way, but it, in an intersubjective yeah. way. In a way, touch almost replaces sight. Yeah. Uh, you comprehend it yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually very revealing, you know. It is. What's the future of the camera? And we'll end with that. Where might the camera lie? You know, one pessimistic answer is it's going to permeate our lives in in ways that it'll be impossible to so hide from the police camera. state and all of that. that that's yeah, okay. you know that the it's it's an element of the Foucauldian apparatus. But as I said, you know, I think um, that'll happen. But I also feel hopeful that a more humane camera praxis will emerge. What's the future of the camera, Nilanjan? What do the philosophers the of the cameras? Sorry. It does not depend upon the camera itself. It depends upon the people who use it. What is their future? What do they see? So now you, they see over, themselves over here, as. Nilanjan, you're treating the camera differently from language. Yes, of course. Right. Because yeah, of, I am. Yeah, you're relying on how people use it, which yes, is that's not true. not yeah. how we. Language is a natural thing. It happens to us naturally. The camera is not a natural thing. It's an artifact. We use it just like we use a table. So, what's the future of a table? It depends upon who uses them. So in the same way, what's the future of camera? It depends upon who's going to use it and what they want out of a camera. Right, right, right. So terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to both of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you so much. Thank you.